This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. Hello, I'm Emmy Lease, and welcome to the latest episode of Think Like a Vegan, a companion podcast to our book, also entitled Think Like a Vegan. When I asked today's guests what they wanted to talk about, they were quickly unanimous. Vegans should be socialist. Of course, I replied. After all, the fairness and justice of veganism is something we should be applying to every aspect of our life. And capitalism just isn't set up for any of that. Troy and Drew wrote the book Half-Earth Socialism, and it was this passage which immediately got my attention. In the introduction, they write... While at times our proposals may seem outlandish, our book, after all, belongs to the utopian tradition. They are meant to encourage those on the left and in the environmental movement to take seriously the challenge of not merely surviving the next century, but creating a better society within a wilder and stabilized biosphere. The rest of the book is similarly direct, unabashedly ethically vegan, and it's an inventive proposition for creating a different and more just world for everyone, people, animals, and plants. They write, For us, agreeing on the details of what that utopia might look like matters less than agreeing that speculation is a vital political act. And we need that creativity and speculation. We need to be able to envision new realities. Otherwise, they write, a world of ever greater inequality, disease, climactic disaster, and ecological impoverishment awaits. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast, Troy Vettese and Drew Pendergrass. Welcome, Troy and Drew. Happy to be here. Here's a bit of background about Drew and Troy. Drew is an environmental engineer working on his PhD at Harvard University. His work imagines how humanity can democratically govern itself in an age of environmental crisis and does so in a variety of ways from traditional scholarship to popular writing, fiction, and video games. He's built computer systems which use observations of the Earth system to provide maps of pollutants and their sources. And we'll hear more about that later in this episode. It blew my mind. And he imagines the sorts of institutions and protocols that would allow humanity to democratically manage our economy and its interchange with ecosystems. Troy is an environmental historian who specializes in environmental economics, animal studies, and energy history. He got his PhD from New York University, worked at Harvard University as a postdoctoral research fellow, and is a Max Weber fellow at the European University Institute. Troy writes on a wide array of environmental topics for a popular audience and has had essays published in The Guardian, The New Statesman, Jacobin, N Plus One, Book Forum, and Boston Review. And my guests today also, as if they weren't busy enough, created an online game to go with the book where you can plan a future economy using different technologies and policies. 
Then these decisions are fed through a real climate model to work out the climate effects while also simulating impacts of a number of things, including the food system and biodiversity. And all this you've got to do whilst keeping voters happy with you. And well, the world alive as we know it today. It's pretty fun and you can find it at half.earth. Before we hear from them on why vegans should be socialists and the other way around too, I want to read this sentence from Half Earth Socialism that I believe sets things up nicely. Capitalism, born in the countryside, must die there if there is to be any hope for a new, ecologically stable socialism to take its place. With that, Troy and Drew, the floor is yours. Thanks very much, and thanks for uh, inviting us on the show. So I'll, I'll begin uh, a little bit with the background of our project, the background for why we think vegans uh, should be socialists, and I think we should also add that socialists should be vegans, of course, as well. Uh, and then Drew will, will uh, follow uh, and give more of a background into the uh, our project and and relate veganism to planning and all that. So I want to begin and say that uh, there's a lot of antipathy between socialists and vegans in the present. Uh, I think if you know you're a vegan, you're not surprised to hear that. There have been plenty of socialists who would tell you that caring about animals is sentimental and, and bourgeois and, and a distraction perhaps. And uh, instead, one has to focus on uh, uh, various forms of class struggle or capitalism, or one has to also try not to alienate certain people to build up a broader movement and so forth. So you don't see much overlap. And I actually organized a, a conference once on animals and the left, and I think we had all the vegan Marxists uh, in New York in, in the room, and it wasn't a very big room. And uh, that tells you the state of, of things. And I think this is a real problem because I think uh, both movements are better off if they actually can learn from each other. And, and I think also it's useful to remember that at one point in time, there was a great degree of overlap between socialists and vegans. Uh, when socialism emerged uh, in the late 19th and early uh, 20th century, many utopian socialists were, uh, were vegetarians, uh, including Robert Owen, uh, for, for instance, also um, per, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley was another uh, vegetarian and wrote extensively on, on this. And he also saw the connection between um, meat eating and class domination because of the need to have large uh, amounts of land to actually uh, have pasture to uh, feed cattle and that have meat. He actually talked about this about being a, an acre on one's plate and therefore uh, a measure of inequality. And if you go farther back in the utopian uh, tradition, one can see critiques of the domination of animals and, and meat eating in Thomas More's Utopia, but also Plato's Republic uh, as well. So there's this, this long history, and one can also see that there has been a, a a form of the left that has continued this, this tradition. For example, a friend of William Morris, uh, Edward Carpenter, who was a socialist in the late 19th century and actually the one who popularized uh, wearing sandals amongst the non-conventional left in, in Britain. And one was one of the few uh, early uh, you know, gay uh, intellectuals at the time. He was vegetarian. Uh, one could also talk about Henry Salt and, and, and many more uh, 
vegetarian socialists up to the present, including people like Angela Davis. So I think there is this tradition, but there has been uh, overlooked, right? And again, instead, there's much antagonism. And why is there that antagonism? So what happened to this utopian socialist tradition? And we know, we believe that it comes down to uh, divergent intellectual traditions where uh, in the mid-20th century, mid-19th century, you have Marx, who is a Hegelian and who was quite critical of the utopian socialist tradition and sees this need to dominate nature, uh, to to give everyone abundance and create a form of utopia. And in this way, he's reacting against conservative critics of utopianism, such as Malthus, right? And you have this need to dominate nature and therefore this, this antagonism towards animals emerging. Whereas before in the utopian tradition, people believe that uh, a good society required the liberation of people and the liberation of animals together. So you have this split emerging. Around the same time, you have... Bentham, who is the founder of utilitarianism, a great influence on Peter Singer uh, and many other uh, animal rights activists. And he is a strange form of liberal who cares about calculating utility. This is a great influence on neoclassical economics and all that. And the problem with utilitarianism is that it doesn't question the, the system that it exists in, right? It has no conception of capitalism. This is why you have uh, modern or contemporary uh, animal rights movements that are, that are predicated on utilitarianism, such as effective altruism, which end up in very weird places where they never question um, you know, what is the cause of, of uh, cruelty towards animals or the cause of environmental problems. Instead, it actually tells people to become good capitalists, basically, to make lots of money and donate to uh, various causes that they will then rate based on quals or whatever kind of metric they, they want. And we have seen the outcome of, of this uh, pseudo-rational, psychometric uh, philosophy with the great downfall of uh, uh, FX, sorry, what was it called again? The, the, the terrible um, Bitcoin exchange and all this, and uh, also ridiculous arguments for uh, worrying about, you know, the billions and trillions of people existing in, in the future rather than the environmental crisis and the animal crisis that exists now. So we actually are drawing in many ways on a critic of uh, utilitarian thought, a person named Otto Neurath, who says, if you have any single metric, it would end up in a pseudo-rational outcome. And I think utilitarianism is a great example of that. So we have to then, in some ways, return to our origins and imagine uh, you know, what is the cause of the environmental crisis, and that causes, in many ways, capitalism, or capitalism is an extremely important uh, contributor to that cause. And we have to think in utopian terms of trying to overcome uh, overcome this system and actually imagine what does it look like to have a society where people can live the good life and we can reconcile ourselves to other animals and to the natural world. But at this point, I'll let Drew uh, take over and speak a bit more about our broader project. Thanks, Troy, for that. Um, like, like Troy mentioned, uh, we think that uh, vegans should be socialist uh, because the environmental crisis is in large part a product of capitalism. Uh, so unlike the uh, utilitarian focus on kind of reducing suffering um, as sort of like this, this single goal that almost blinds us to the systems that create the crisis, we, we want to look go to the root of the problem. Um, you know, capitalism is this uh, enormous 
system that uh, no one is in control of. It's a decentralized and coercive system where everyone kind of blindly follows these these price mechanisms. And so even as we know what is causing the environmental crisis, for example, uh, mass extinction is caused in large part by habitat loss. We know what causes habitat loss. It's a lot of it is uh, deforestation for pasture, for fodder crops, for uh, all sorts of these um these systems, we know what causes climate change. It's caused by fossil fuel emissions and also by, uh, you know, enteric fermentation from cattle. Uh, we know what all of these things are caused by, uh, but we can't seem to do anything about it because this capitalist system uh, is this uh, system in which no one is in control, not even rich people, because a, a rich person running a company still has to follow uh, profit signals. So, if we want to solve the environmental crisis, if we want to solve the animal crisis, we need to take a look at this system which is driving all of these different crises. One thing to think about is what does meat do for capitalism? Uh, what, why do we eat so much meat now? I think the listeners of this podcast are probably familiar with the fact that we eat a lot of meat now. And in the past, humans did not eat very much meat with the exception of a very small number of societies. So, what meat does uh, is it takes our commodity crop system, right? We have all this corn, we have all this soy, and you can transform it into a variety of products like a Dorito or a steak by feeding it the corn to an animal. The animal is a factory just the same way that the Dorito factory is a factory. You take this commodity, corn or soy, and you just transform it into all these different end consumer goods. Meat is a the nice thing about meat for capitalism is it has this sort of social cachet, right? Like meat is a, a symbol of power or strength and it can be made cheap. And it's sort of uh, this, this nice product um, uh, in the end, but we know why this is irrational, right? Uh, I'm sure again, the listeners of this podcast know that uh, pastures take up a vast quantity of land and produce very little amounts of food uh, and calories for for all that land. It's an irrational way to eat in a planet in crisis. So, but because we have this capitalist system in which no one is in charge, uh, we can maybe recognize this, but we can't really do that much about it within the system or within this sort of utilitarian frame of like one person eating less meat, although certainly you should eat less meat. Um, the alternative is socialism. And to us, what socialism means is bringing the economy under the conscious and democratic control of human beings. So rather than an unconscious system where everyone blindly follows a single price signal, leading to all sorts of disastrous outcomes that no one wants, like the environmental crisis, then instead we should deliberate and plan together, uh, you know, uh, bringing the economy under democratic control. So, of course, this is an incredibly complicated <laughs> prospect, right, uh, democratizing something like the economy. Uh, and there's a, lo a long history of thinking about this That's we don't really have the time to go into now, but we have a book out um, called Half-Earth Socialism that does think about possible ways one might uh, democratically govern something complicated like the economy. Um, but all this aside, the, the goal is to look at the the overall goals we want to achieve, such as sufficient living for everyone, 
a healthy biosphere, uh, a renewable energy system, uh, and so on and so on, and look at like what do we need to build and do to make that happen. Uh, we call this sort of in natura planning, so planning in natural units, you know, thinking about how much energy, how much food, how much land is required for various forms of living. There's not one universal idea of what uh, a life should be, and that would be a, a subject of political contestation. Um, but the idea is that we would think about what, what the life we would want to have is, have these arguments, and then uh, deliberate on how to bring that about. So our gambit is if we bring something like the food system into a true democratic debate, true popular control, and we think hard together about what the environmental costs we're willing to bear are, uh, etc. And um, we have a strong environmental and animal rights movement making the case for plant-based eating, then we can build a real alternative to the system. And of course, this has implications now, right? It's it, The implications are, you know, for one thing, uh, embodying a, a better future through, you know, our individual choices to eat less, but also sharing that with others. And then also becoming part of these movements and trying to push them into into the mainstream. I think Troy will talk about this. But the, the, the really one thing I want to emphasize is that veganism is important for these ethical reasons. But in our world where we are, we are trying to supply enough food for everyone, it also just makes things easier. Right? If you have less land and less resources you're putting into the food system, if you're eating plants rather than feeding plants to animals and then eating the animals, that makes things a lot easier to plan. It makes things a lot easier to work with, um, which is maybe a little bloodless of an argument, but it is uh, a real a real reason to to care about it in this socialist context. Let's pause here for our musical interlude, after which we'll return with more from Troy Vitteze and Drew Pendergrass. Here's another piece from Matthew Gerstenberger's time in Tokyo, and you can hear all about him and his work in episode one of this season. This is Leaving the SRWG. back for the second part of Vegans Should Be Socialists with Drew Pendergrass and Troy Vitteze. As 
Drew's saying, um, what we try to do in the book and our approach to, to socialism is to look at planning in this, this large scale. And we see these constant trade-offs in terms of land use, uh, because we need lots of land for renewable energy. We need lots of land to sequester carbon. And we also need to uh, you know, grow crops to, to feed people and so forth. And there is this conflict. Um, and I should also say we also need a huge amount of land to turn into nature preserves to prevent the mass extinction event that's that's underway. That's why we call it our book Half-Earth Socialism. The half-earth is this idea of turning half the world into nature preserves. So you need all this land. And uh, the, the major use of land right now is for growing crops to feed livestock. So what we do in the book is we try to make, as Drew's saying, a fairly technical argument that arises from the argument of in natura planning to say why veganism is extremely important for socialists, right? And I think one can also draw on uh, the, the Marxist and, and socialist tradition to make an ethical case for why the left should be vegan as well. As in what capitalism is, is that it's a system that is directing the forces of nature, including human labor, uh, as well, towards making commodities and turning everything into to commodities. And it's creating the second nature built in the image of capitalism. And therefore, socialism is the movement to prevent that from happening, to return, uh, to free humans from uh, the control of capitalism, but also to free these, these flows of nature that include uh, the climatic system, that include the, the lives and metabolisms of animals, and, and so forth. So that must be part of the same fight. And we have to choose consciously to what degree we should work or to what what degree we should uh, transform the surface of the earth to have enough for ourselves to provide a good life and all that. But these things that should be decided democratically by us rather than through this, this market, right, through capital. And the, what we're saying mainly goes to trying to convince um, socialists to take animal rights and veganism seriously, because again, there is this incredible antipathy towards uh, these movements. And we're saying this out of experience. I mean, we wrote this book and uh, we've been attacked mainly on the charge of veganism is impractical by fellow uh, you know, left-wing thinkers. Um, and this is funny because managing the world economy will be an extremely difficult task. And that would be a much harder task than, you know, shading your sausages for tofurkey or whatever. That's an easy uh, change. But what we're trying to do with this interview and, and, and this podcast is to also appeal to vegans and people who care about animal rights to take the left seriously. And I would say this and, and make an honest plea for for this, because we, we're well aware that many socialists and many Marxists can be extremely annoying, especially when it comes to animal rights. But there's much to learn from the uh, socialist tradition. There are many strong concepts. I mean, let alone the concept of, of capitalism, which is uh, necessary to understand the present predicament, and many other uh, useful frameworks that one can get from uh, you know, a couple of centuries of, of socialist thought. So we urge you to take that seriously. We also would urge our listeners to to think that and, and, and imagine like, what does the end point look like? I, I do not think that having 
in the new kinds of uh, products from vegan entrepreneurs alone will suffice to to create the, our utopia, right? I mean, we can see that we will have a doubling of meat production alongside uh, a narrow aisle at the supermarket for, for new tasty vegan cheeses and all that. What we need is to have a, a framework where we can decide politically on restricting certain kinds of production and consumption, right? And this will take uh, a powerful coalition. It also will take tools of political economy. We need to think about how will we plan uh, what we do with the world and how what we plan with uh, how we will feed ourselves and, and what we will do with, with other animals. So these, these, things, these things are necessary, and the socialist tradition has many tools in this uh, regard. We also require a much broader and more powerful coalition. We have tons of infighting between feminist, uh, anti-colonial uh, movements, indigenous movements, environmentalists, conservationists, uh, socialists, animal rights movements. They're all at each other's throats, right? And what we're trying to say in our book is that each of these movements can learn from one another, and they have to be united to actually achieve many of their goals. And that means, for example, with, with feminism, we can see why many people eat meat, as, as Drew was saying, is to signify uh, one's gender position or one's class position, and that is a, a huge problem, right? Uh, one can also see that we need to have indigenous allies to win many environmental fights. We also need to see that the conservation movement has a terrible racist past that it needs to atone for. And we also need to see for, for socialists that they need to take the environment seriously when there is an environmental crisis going on. And we need to have good vegan animal uh, rights allies as well. Uh, a friend of mine, Andreas Mom, he wrote a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and it was an argument for the environmental movement to engage in sabotage. And what I find somewhat uh, strange is that he did not get into uh, the animal rights movement, which is constantly engaging in acts of sabotage. These are great allies to have. And I think once we learn to talk to each other and convince each other, we can make this broader movement and we can achieve many things that we cannot achieve by ourselves. And we're not saying this is going to be easy. Again, there are plenty of idiotic, you know, sausage socialists out there who will be you know, not very fun to talk to. But I think this is a worthwhile political endeavor to create this kind of unity. And this is why we are, again, on this podcast and trying to also convince our socialist uh, friends as well. So I hope that made sense. And we hope, uh, uh, you know, you will think a bit more seriously about becoming uh, a socialist if you're not already. And please feel free to contact Drew and I to talk more about half-earth socialism. Um, this was fantastic. Thank you so much, Troy and Drew. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, I loved your book. As you know, I've, I've told you that personally. And, and listening to this, as well as reading your work... For me, it's incredibly invigorating because it's not the usual platitudes and the stale ideas. It's a, a real antidote, too, to the notion that we can fix problems of capitalism uh, with more capitalism. And and you you address that in a very serious way, but also in a lighthearted way. I, I mean, I found myself laughing out loud a few times of things you said, as well as, as shaking my head in agreement. Yeah, we, so you, you like the puns then. You should encourage us because we'll put even more puns next time. You'll see. <laughs> yeah, I'm all for puns. Uh, I'm all for dad jokes and, and all of that. Uh, definitely. Um, I also like how you keep going back to the point. It's not easy. 
And I want to say it's never easy to be the ones pushing for new ideas. And I'm really glad that that you had the courage and wherewithal to do so. Um, I, I think that's uh, that's really admirable and also incredibly necessary. It's vital um, to to uh, not just their survival, but but more than that, to to live well. Um, and there's something else that you said, um, Drew. Um, now you said that veganism is important for ethical reasons, but it's also just a lot easier. And I, and I love that because, yeah, I mean, it's just a lot easier for a lot of things. So you would, you would think in some ways it would even be a, um, uh, it, it would be a, a, a catalyst for capitalism itself. I mean, which we do see with all the proliferation of products and and so on. And and that's all, that's a whole different topic. But I think there's, you know, you see this, it's sort of easier to do this, even though you have to dismantle so much, but yet there's, there's a, a, um, it's such an easier path that uh, it's always very surprising when you come across these um, arguments, making it seem like, oh my God, no, being vegan, so difficult. It's ridiculous. No, it's ridiculous. People want to see, they want to tackle that as like the last thing, you know, like we'll change energy, we'll change transport and, and then we'll talk about meat. I'm like, no, talk about meat first. That's the easiest thing to change. Yeah. It's also like energy crises cause these insane inflationary crises, you know, like, you know, whenever oil is having problems, the economy just totally falls apart. And it's so funny because like when I tell my family who are neither socialist nor vegan about the book, they're convinced by the vegan argument much earlier than they're convinced by the socialist argument as in like all my family members are basically have you know become some form of flexitarian you know varying levels of seriousness about it but at least like worry about it when they have meat which is a good place to start and then the socialism argument they're like yeah no i don't think that'll work but you know i'll i'll i'll, I'll have some beyond burgers <laughs> and and the opposite for a socialist right they're like okay they like they like our they make the socialist chapter like the planning chapter but they hate the veganism like it's intense yeah because it, in some ways that requires a sacrifice um well a perceived sacrifice it's not a sacrifice but it requires an actual change within oneself so you you just you, you don't need to just rail against a sort of an external force but you actually have to do something about it and you actually have to carry through your ideas not just in um uh, uh, some in, in, in somewhere where you can have um a limited amount of uh, uh, of effect. I mean, you know, you're not you're not in a factory where you you know you you can treat your workers in a certain way or in another way, and and um, you can make things better. Not many people are at that point, but it requires actually looking at your um, daily behavior and saying, oh, wait a second, I'm doing the exact same thing that the man and the oppressor and the capitalists are doing, and I'm just doing it to someone else. And and that's a real moment of tension that any individual would have a tough time um, just reconciling with oneself. No, Drew and I talk about this. It's like whenever we hear arguments from socialists against veganism, they always use traditional conservative arguments, right? It's always about hierarchy and pseudoscience and, yeah, tradition. And you're like, you know, do you hear yourself talking? <laughs> I mean, are you a socialist? <laughs> like, it's insane. I don't know. 
yeah, I, I, yes, absolutely. And I think that uh, a lot of people listening to this will be shaking their heads in, in, uh, in recognition. I was trying to stress that again, Marxists are annoying and I know people that are interested in Marx, but have been turned off because they went to a reading group and there's some asshole, you know, and, uh, I know people, you know, who they're talking about, right. I know the type and it's like not letting those people ruin socialism right for everyone else basically and i want to kind of stress that because absolutely yeah no absolutely i mean and you know people say oh i met a vegan once and they were annoying so therefore you're like well i've met lots of people of all sorts of types who are annoying and that doesn't mean that i'm not going to do x because so and so was annoying about it but also like the annoying vegan is usually not very annoying the annoying marxist (laughs) is much more annoying i would say the annoying vegan just says you know this, it, you know, you shouldn't eat meat, and it's, it's bad in all these ways. And uh, the Marxist is is just uh, superior in all these unnecessary, snobby ways. And I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, absolutely. I I totally totally understand. Um, before we go, um, where can people follow your work, whether online or otherwise? And do you have any projects that you'd like to tell us about? True. Why don't you go first? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can follow me at Pindergrass Drew on Twitter, uh, although I'm not on there very much. Um, uh, as far as upcoming projects, Troy and I are, are starting to think about uh, a follow-up book to Half Earth Socialism, kind of elaborating on some of the arguments, thinking more critically about democracy. How does democracy work in the economy? Um, and uh, that'll probably be years away, but. Um, something to maybe uh, uh, think about. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if there's much upcoming. Uh, read Half Earth Socialism. <laughs> Drew, talk about all your cool science stuff. You're making the Half Earth Socialist cybernetic system. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I mean, on, this, on the science side, one of the main things I'm working on right now, I'm trying to make global real-time maps of methane emissions around the world. So using satellites uh, and then also countries' self-reported emissions to the United Nations, uh, trying to basically take a look at what the world would look like if those emissions were correct. So if countries were correct in saying how much livestock, how much oil they have, et cetera. Uh, And then the satellite looks down and sees what actually is going on. Then we scale up or scale down appropriately. And so the idea is to have every week a new map um, so hopefully that'll be done this year. Again, um, things always take longer than they think, but the goal is to build up this system of earth observations so that we can see what's happening to the environment in real time. And then hopefully, uh, use that as a tool for activism and then interventions, uh, of various kinds. And in, and then in a world that we want to build a truly democratic world, we could use that to help, uh, govern humanity's reaction interactions with the earth system. So, yeah. Is that on a website already? It is not on a website yet, but okay. if you follow me on Twitter, I'll let you know as soon as it's up. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, Drew's doing such crazy stuff. Like he's working with like the Korean Space Agency and, and all this. Like it's, uh, it's very, very cool. And, and you have all these other things planned, right? I mean, what's after methane? Well, I mean, it can work for anything. So I'll work on other pollutants next. Um, so ammonia is especially interesting. You know, uh, ammonia is a major uh, agricultural product from manure and from fertilizer. And it's a 
It's one of the, we believe it's one of the main reasons why air quality is not getting better in East Asia. So like in China and Korea, we're not sure yet, but uh, the, um, the coal emissions have gone down a lot in that region, but air quality remains stubbornly bad, although it's improving. And one of the next steps to improving it might be reducing ammonia emissions. So something like that is, is on the docket. That's incredible. Really amazing work. Yeah, Drew's a cool dude. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I got off Twitter because it's horrible. <laughs> but um, um, in terms of work that's going on these days and also where to follow us. So Drew forgot to mention that we also have a website for the book called at half.earth. And there you can see upcoming events, previous events, you know, reviews. Uh, also, um, you can play the game. We made a video game where you play as a planetary planner and you can do anything you want. You can be a Malthusian, you can be a Jew engineer, you can ban meat and uh, spark meat terrorists and all that. You can do whatever you want. It's a very fun game. Uh, it was a very fun project. We worked with a lot of people on it and you can find that at half.earth as well. And hopefully you'll put that in the little link uh, on sure the site. Will. And um, otherwise we're thinking of a bunch of different things. Uh, you know, yeah, Drew and I are working uh, towards writing an, another book and writing an, an essay now that will appear in a very cool collection called Against Catastrophe that's edited by Orit Halpern who's at the University of Dresden, um, and that would be a start for us to think about the book. We're also working uh, with some other potential, uh, with some designers, maybe on a board game uh, version of ha the half of Socialist game as well. And, uh, you know, this for me is all uh, extracurricular activities because I'm actually an environmental historian and I'm supposed to be working on the history of environmental thought. So I, I study neoliberal uh, market-based environmental regulation and I'll be writing a book based on that that should be coming out uh, within the next couple of years as well that I'll be finishing that up. So that's what we're up to. Uh, and again, I hope everyone uh, drops us a line if they, they want to chat more about these projects. Yeah, I also I, I want to write I want I want to write like a, a bird version of what Lee Claire did. I want to do like uh, you know marks for birds. That's my next. <laughs> I, I think there's a, definitely a series in that. I think we should yeah. definitely do that. I've just been completely obsessed. I actually don't do any work. I just want to go bird watching all the time. <laughs> so it's I have like I'm reading four books at once on birds instead of anything else. So. This is uh, me not being productive. But how are the birds in Scotland? Are they are they nice? Yeah, really great. Yeah, there's some uh, incredible birds up here. Uh, there's golden eagles. Um, oh, there wow. are a variety of migratory birds up here as well. Um, from are, are you on the coast? I forget. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And do you get some nice birds? Or do you get some razor bills? Or how do you pronounce it? Like alcids? You know those kind of seabird groups. Yes, there's a variety. I mean, you know, you have puffins up here. I don't see the puffins because they're a bit in a different place than where I am. But um, there's a variety of different geese who come through um, and who are who are um, migratory. And there's uh, little tiny uh, songbirds as well that come from all over the place. We have cuckoos that fly up here from uh, various places in various countries in Africa and in Spain. And, um, yeah, it's a, a pretty incredible place. 
I'm excited. Yeah, Drew, did you know about Emmy's uh, rewilding stuff? I visited your website uh, when I was preparing for this, and I was blown away. It seems amazing. I'd love to visit one day. Uh, it's so beautiful. Come, come <laughs> over, come over. Um, amazing. You definitely, it should. You definitely should come. Um, hey, we're always trying to drag Drew to Europe, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't make it over very often. <laughs> no, you should come. Um, yeah, we've got lots of stuff going on, and. Um, my sort of my big thing this summer is um, working on deer. Not it's basically working on non killing the deer. So I need to get them out of an area that's been enclosed, and there are too many of them for that small area. Uh, and they keep reproducing as they would obviously because they're just living their best lives, running around in the place that they've known forever. So I need to get them to go. To leave, but they are not interested in leaving. So I know I understand, you know, there's all sorts of things like, well, but you know, you're not giving them agency. And it's like, well, no, I'm also like, if I don't do that, I'm going to have incredible, impossible to resist in terms of I'm not going to get a choice anymore. They're going to get killed. So I need to get them out. So at least they have a chance of living. And And where are you going to put them? They're just going to go back out into the wilderness, into outside of the enclosed, um, enclosed area. And um, the enclosed meaning fenced off. Um, There's sort of 50 acres that they got fenced in, not by us, but before us. Um, And then there's plenty of mountains. There's plenty of forests. There's, I mean, there's a ton, a ton of space for them to run around and eat and everything. You need to create a disturbance because there's actually not enough. There's never any disturbance for them. And Scotland is so devoid of people. And what's I think that you would find Scotland interesting, even from a sociopolitical um, perspective, because it's all the problems that are here are so um, wrapped up in in both class and animal agriculture. Um, You know, you had the clearances that basically kicked people off the land to bring sheep so that the landowners could um, make more money because they were looking at Spain and said, oh, well, look at these Spanish uh, aristocrats. They're making tons of money. Let's go. And uh, um, uh, so lots of people left. And there's still not a lot of people here. So in, when you're out in the wilderness and the forest and things like that, there is no one around. No one. So you even the sort of natural interaction between humans and, and, and non-human animals, even that's missing. To the detriment of both, as always is the case, you know? And then no one wants to bring back wolves? Like there's no I know, oh my God, let's not even go there. Oh my God, wolves, people would, ha- would just melt. They would just be a human. It is amazing. Would- I was talking yeah. to someone from Newcastle and she kind of is flipped out. Like they're so unused to it, right? Yeah. They have no yes. idea what no. it's like to live with predators. Yeah. No, no. Like they got rid of them all. There is a, a, a likelihood, high likelihood, that lynx will be reintroduced. And lynx are much smaller and lynx aren't going to go after the sheep. And the problem is always the sheep. Um, the problem is the sheep, full stop. When people are like, oh, it's all the deer who are eating everything. No, there's there's two million deer in all of the whole of the UK and 33 million sheep. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to figure that one out. 
you know, and it's not like they're in farms. They're all over. They're just free roaming, running around on the hills. I mean, you know, but anyway. That's it. No, it's it's so cool that you reached out to us because, like, yeah, no one else is interested in veganism and uh, rewilding. Like, it's such a rare combination, sadly. It, it is. Um, and what I find interesting is when I have conversations like this and when I have presented a variety of different topics in front of the sort of non-vegan sphere or the, the um, forestry people and so forth, they take these arguments in i want to say really well but but what i mean by that is you would think that that they would boo me right out of the room absolutely not they're like you're right and and talking about these things and 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 showing the connections and showing the the historical connections too that really um speaks to people a lot here um which i find i'm always surprised by it because you know, I go into spaces that I'm like, oh, there's are not going to be friendly spaces, but then they turn out to be really listening spaces. And you're saying I, I something think to people. Oh, you go ahead, Drew. It's, it's no, it's, I think it's so real. Like, I mean, well, I mean, you, you never know exactly how people react, but you know, a lot of forestry people also hate the sheep, right. Or whatever, you know, like I've, I found this, you know, and they always just don't want to talk about it because, you yes. know, they don't want to alienate the landowners or they yes. don't want to like, you know, they see, they see a, some sort of pragmatic strategy of some kind, or no one talks about it because there's sort of this almost like, because no one's broken the silence and you kind of need like, well, this is just universally true politics, but like you yeah. need the, the crazy vegan or yeah. the crazy socialist to come exactly. in and broach the subject. And then we can, you know, talk about it, but like you need to have someone playing the role of being like, we need to get rid of the sheep, you know? And then all of a sudden it becomes a topic that you can discuss. Uh, It's an important role. Exactly. And, and time and time again, I have had this proven to me in, in my real life. I mean, yes, anecdotal is just me, but like literally no one else is, is, you know, has the gumption to be like, okay, we're going to have a grown up conversation and we're going to talk about sheep. And I'm going to take these numbers from your, you know, you know, your data set, not, not going to like some friendly PETA or whatever. Like these are your numbers from the hunting. Have you thought about writing like an op-ed or something or? Um, eh. you know, again, just, just throw these grenades into the guardian. It's always fun. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I probably should. I, I probably should. But then again, I'm just like, eh. You know, I'd rather do my thing on a on a um, individual sort of basis, like how I do it. Um, it and, and I don't mean necessarily one-on-one, but like individual in terms of like, you know, the different groups that we're working with and and the, the platform that get, that gives us to actually have these kinds of conversations with um, from forestry people to... Uh, land developers to, you know, um, whatever, all all types of, even, even, um, uh, like big hydro and electric companies and things like that. Um, you know, that, that has, um, that's been very satisfying, but you're also right. It's nice to lob those, those kind of grenades. Yeah. Maybe so. So maybe I should do that. Um, it's just kind of fun. Everyone freaks out. Everyone freaks out. Know. They do freak yeah. out. No, absolutely. And also, you just like get it out. Like I had, I, you know, I have my own crank positions, and I just like <laughs> have them for so long in my head, and I just wanted to get it out, you know. And uh, I feel a little, 
feel like a touch better. Yeah, yeah. This is fantastic. Thank you so much again, uh, Drew and Troy. Really appreciate you coming on and uh, looking forward to uh, all your projects. Cool. Great. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. 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 See you Take then. Care. Bye. Bye. Thanks again. Bye. This episode, we continue to underscore the necessity of looking beyond ourselves. Socialism isn't an extreme position any more than veganism. They both require a recognition of the inherent worth and fundamental equality of others, all others, to ensure collective well-being. We need to have honest conversations about political ideology, free from the constraints of the narrative that things can only be done exactly the way we're doing them now. And if you're interested in learning more about the rewilding project I'm involved in that we talked about with Troy and Drew, then check out birchfieldhighlands.org. Our goal at Birchfield is to rewild 100 acres in the highlands in Scotland near Loch Ness. These were planted as a small commercial forest and there are some remaining areas of ancient woodland including a very rare environment of temperate rainforest. We aim to restore the native forest and the peat bog, the funga, and reintroduce locally extinct species and inspire people to connect with the environment. And of course, vegan ethics are a fundamental part of our ethos. In this project, we use the IUCN CEM rewilding principles and work with our partners to run a living laboratory, which will test innovative approaches for capturing data on social and environmental change using technologies such as drones, AI, and remote sensing technologies. We want to develop a, a capital accounting framework, recording, quantifying, and valuing the environmental and social changes on the site. That was the natural capital accounting that I was referring to when we were talking and create engaging ways of communicating the findings and the benefits of rewilding, such as on virtual reality and digital platforms. The website for that again is birchfieldhighlands.org. Next time, Dr. Corey Lee Wren on factionalism in the vegan movement. That's it from me, Emmy Lees. Thank you for listening. I'll post a transcript in due course on our website, thinklikeavegan.com. Remember, you can get in touch by email at thinklikeavegan.book at gmail.com or find Think Like a Vegan on social media. You can find me, more of my work and my upcoming events at emmysgoodeating.com and on social media. Subscribe to this podcast, share it with others and leave us a review. And you can buy Think Like a Vegan anywhere you buy books and audiobooks or request it from your local library. Production credit goes to Jim Moore of Bloody Vegans Productions. Theme music provided by Jenny Moore's Mystic Business from the eponymous album. The opening tune is Flashback, and we close with Tear Things Up. The interval music is by Matthew Gerstenberger, a.k.a. Seismicity, on SoundCloud.
For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!